Part One of Warrior of Two Worlds. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Phil Chenevere. This story was first published in Planet Stories, Summer, 1944. Warrior of Two Worlds by Manly Wade Wellman. Part One. My senses came to me slowly and somehow shyly, as if not sure of their way or welcome. I felt first pressure on my brow and chest, as if I lay face downward, then the tug and buffet of a strong probing wind, insistent but not cold, upon my naked skin. Closing my hands, I felt them dig into coarse dirt. I turned my face downwind and opened my eyes. There was little to see, so thick was the dust-cloud around me. Words formed themselves on my thick tongue, words that must have been spoken by so many reviving unfortunates through the ages. Where am I? And at once there was an answer. You lie upon the world, Dondromagon. I knew the language of that answer, but where it came from? Above, beneath, or indeed within me, I could not say. I lifted my hand and knuckled dust from my eyes. How did I get here? I demanded of the speaker. It was ordered by the masters of the world that you should be brought from your own home planet called Earth in the system of the star called Sun and I did not know whether I remembered or not. Vague matters stirred deep in me, but I could not for certain say they were memories. I asked yet again, Who am I? The voice had a note of triumph. You do not know that. It is as well, for this will be a birth and beginning of your destined leadership on Dondromagon. Destined? Leadership? I began to repeat and fell silent. I had need to think. The voice was telling me that I had been snatched from worlds away for a specified purpose here on whatever wind-swept planet Dondromagon might be. Birth and beginning? Destined leadership? Fantastic! And yet— for all I could say to the contrary, unvarnishedly true. Don Dromagon, I mumbled. The name is strange to me. It is a world the size of your native one, came the words of information. Around a star it spins light years away from the world of your birth. One face of Don Dromagon ever looks to the light and heat, wherefore its metals run in glowing seas. The other face is ever away in cold darkness, with its air freezing into solid chunks. But because Dondromagon wavers on its axis, there are two loons of its surface which from time to time shift from night to day. 
These are habitable. My eyes were tight shut against the dust, but they saw in imagination such a planet, one half incandescent, one half pitchy black. From pole to pole on opposite sides ran the two twilight zones, widest at the equators like the outer rind of two slices of melon. Of course such areas between the hot and cold hemispheres would be buffeted by mighty gales. The voice was to be heard again. War is fought between the two strips of habitable ground. War, unceasing, bitter, with no quarter asked, given, or expected. Dondromagon was found and settled long ago by adventurers from afar. Now come invaders to reap the benefits of discovery and toil. A pause. You find that thought unpleasant? You wish to right that wrong? Anyone would wish that, I replied. But how— You are going to ask how you were brought here. That is the mystery of the masters. The voice became grand. Suffice it that you were needed and that the time was ripe. There is a proper time, like a proper place, for each thing and each happening. Now go to your destiny." I rose to my knees, shielding my face from the buffeting wind by lifting a forearm. Somewhere through the murky clouds showed a dim blocky silhouette, a building of sorts. The voice spoke no more. I had not the time to wonder about it. I got to my feet, bent double to keep from being blown over, and staggered toward the promised haven. I reached it, groped along until I found a door. There was no latch, handle, or entry button, and I pounded heavily on the massive panels. The door opened from within, and I was blown inside to fall sprawling. I struck my forehead upon a floor of stone or concrete, and so was half-stunned, but still I could distinguish something like the sound of agitated voices. Then I felt myself grasped by both shoulders and drawn roughly erect. The touch restored my senses, and I wrenched myself violently free. What had seized me? That was my first wonder. On this strange world called Dondromagon, what matter of intelligent life bade defiance to heat and cold and storm, and built these stout structures, and now laid hands—were they hands indeed—upon me? I swung around, setting my back to a solid wall. My first glance showed me that my companions were creatures like myself—two-legged, fair-skinned men, shorter and slighter than I but clad in metal-faced garments and wearing weapons in their girdles. I saw that each bore a sword-like device with a curved guard set in a narrow sheath as long as my arm. Each also had a shorter weapon, with a curved stock to fit the palm of the hand, borne snugly in a holster. With such arms I had a faint sense of familiarity. "'Who are you, and where are you from?' said one of the two 
a broad-faced middle-aged fellow. Don't lie any more than you can help. I felt a stirring on the hair of my neck, but kept my voice mild and level. Why should I lie? Especially as I don't know who I am, or where I am from, or anything that has happened longer ago than just a moment. I woke up out there in the dust storm, and I managed to come here for shelter. He's a newcomer spy, quoth the other. Let's put him under arrest. And leave this gate unguarded? demanded the other. Sound the signal. And he jerked his head toward a system of levers and gauges on the wall beside the door jamb. There's a bigger reward for capture than for warning, objected his friend in turn. And whoever comes to take this man will claim the capture. I'll guard here, and you take him in. Then we'll divide— No, yours is the idea. I'll guard, and you take him in. The second man studied me apprehensively. He's big, and looks strong, even without weapons. Don't be afraid, I urged. I'll make no resistance, if you'll only conduct me to your commander. I can show him that I'm no spy or enemy. Both stared narrowly. No spy? No enemy? asked the broad-faced one who had first spoken. Then to his comrade, No reward, then. I think there'll be a reward, was the rejoinder, and the second man's hand stole to the sword-weapon. With a whispering rasp it cleared from its scabbard. If he's dead, we get pay for both warning and capture. His thumb touched a button at the pommel of the hilt. The dull blade suddenly glowed like heated iron, and from it crackled and pulsed little rainbow rays. There was no time to think or plan or ponder. I moved in with a knowing speed that surprised me as much as the two guards. Catching the fellow's weapon wrist, I clamped it firmly and bent it back and around. He whimpered and swore, and its glowing sword dropped. Its radiant blade almost fell on my naked foot. Before the clang of its fall was through echoing, I had caught it up and set the point within inches of its owner's unprotected face. Quiet, or I'll roast you, I told him. The other had drawn a weapon of his own, a pistol-form arrangement. I turned on him, but too late. He pressed the trigger, and from the muzzle came not a projectile, but a flying, spouting filament of cord that seemed to spring on me like a long, thin snake, and to fasten coil after coil around my body. The stuff that gushed from the gun muzzle seemed plastic in form, but hardened so quickly upon contact with the air, it bound me like wire. Half a dozen adroit motions of the fellow's gun hand, and my arms were caught to my body. I dropped my sword to prevent it burning me, and tried to break away, but my bonds were too much for me. "'Let me out of this,' I growled, and kicked at the man with my still unbound foot. He snapped a half-hitch on my ankle and threw me heavily. Triumphant laughter came from both adversaries. Then, "'What's this?' The challenge was clear, rich, authoritative. Someone else had come from a rearward door into the stone-walled vestibule where the encounter was taking place. A woman this time, not of great height, and robust but not heavy. She was dressed for vigorous action, in dark slacks with buskins to make them snug around ankles and calves. 
a jerkin of stout material that was faced with metal armor plates and left bare her round, strong arms. A gold-worked fillet bound her tawny hair back from a rosy, bold-featured face, a nose that was positively regal, a mouth short and firm but not hard, and blue eyes that just now burned and questioned. She wore a holstered pistol, and a cross-belt supported several instruments of a kind I could not remember seeing before. A crimson cloak gave color and dignity to her costume, and plainly she was someone of position, for both the men stiffened to attention. "'A spy,' one ventured. He pushed in, claimed he was no enemy, then tried to attack—' "'They lie,' I broke in, very conscious of my naked helplessness before her regard. They wanted to kill me and be rewarded for a false story of vigilance. I only defended myself. Get him on his feet, the young woman said, and the two guards obeyed. Then her eyes studied me. Gods! What a mountain of a man! she exclaimed. Can you walk, stranger? Barely with these bonds. Then managed to do so. She flung off her cloak and draped it over my nakedness. Walk along beside me. No tricks, and I promise you fair hearing." We went through the door by which she had entered, into a corridor beyond. It was lighted by small, brilliant bulbs at regular intervals. Beyond it gave into several passages. She chose one of them and conducted me along. "'You are surely not of us,' she commented. "'Men I have seen who are heavier than you, but none taller. Whence came you?' I remembered the strange voice that had instructed me. "'I am from a far world,' I replied. "'It is called—yes, uh, Earth. Beyond that I know nothing. Memory left me.' "'The story is a strange one,' she commented. "'And your name?' "'I do not know that either. Who are you?' "'Dariza, a gentlewoman of the guard. My inspection tour brought me by chance to where you fought my outposts. But it is not for you to ask questions. Enter here." We passed through another door, and I found myself in an office. A man in richly embossed armor platings sat there. He had a fringe of pale beard, and his eyes were bluer than the gentlewoman Doriza's. She made a gesture of salute, hand at shoulder height and reported the matter. He nodded for her to fall back to a corner. "'Stranger,' he said to me, "'can you think of no better tale to tell than you now offer?' "'I tell the truth,' was my reply, not very gracious. "'You will have to prove that,' he admonished me. "'What proof have I?' I demanded. "'On this world of yours, Don Dromagon, isn't it called?' I'm no more than an hour old. Accident or shock has taken my memory. Let me have a medical examination. A scientist probably can tell what happened to me to put me in such a condition." "'I am a scientist,' offered Doriza, and came forward. Her eyes met mine, suddenly flickered and lowered. "'His gaze,' she muttered. The officer at the table was touching a button. An attendant appeared received an order and vanished again. In a few moments two other men came, one a heavily armed officer of rank, 
the other an elderly bearded fellow in a voluminous robe that enfolded him in most dignified manner. The latter man opened wide his clear old eyes at sight of me. "'The stranger of the prophecy!' he cried, in a voice that made us all jump. The officer rose from behind the table. "'Are you totally mad, Spore? You mystic doctors are too apt to become fuddled.' "'But it is! It is!' the greybeard flourished a thin hand at me. "'Look at him, you of little faith! Your mind dwells so much on material strength that you lose touch with the spiritual!' He broke off and wheeled on the attendant who had let him in. "'To my study!' he commanded. "'On the shelf behind my desk bring the great gold-bound book that is third from the right.' Then he turned back and bowed toward me. "'Surely you are Yandro, the conquering stranger,' he said, intoning as if in formal prayer. "'Pardon these short-sighted ones, deign to save us from our enemies.' The girl Doriza spoke to the officer. "'If sport speaks truth, and he generally does, you have committed a blasphemy.' The other made a little grimace. "'This may be Yandro, though I am a plain soldier and follow the classics very little.' The first comers are souls to worship, not to study. If indeed he is Yandro, and he was most respectful, he will appreciate, like a good military mind, my caution against possible impostors. Who might Yandro be? I demanded, very uncomfortable in my bonds and loose draperies. Old Spar almost crowed. You see? If he was a true impostor, he would come equipped with all plausible knowledge, as it is. As it is, he may remember that the conquering stranger is foretold to come with no memory of anything, supplied the officer. Score one against you, Spar. You should have been able to instruct me, not I you. The attendant re-entered with a big book in his hands. It looked old and well-thumbed with dim gold traceries on its binding. Spar snatched it and turned to a brightly colored picture. He looked once, his beard gaped, and he dropped to his knees. "'Happy, happy the day,' he jabbered, "'that I was spared to see our great champion come among us in the flesh, as was foretold of ancient time by the first comers.' Doriza and the officer crossed to his side, snatching the book. Their bright heads bent over it. Doriza was first to speak. "'It is very like,' she half-stammered. The officer faced me with a sort of baffled respect. "'I still say you will understand my caution,' he addressed me with real respect and shyness this time. "'If you are Yandro himself, you can prove it. The prophecy even sketches a thumbprint,' and he held the book toward me. It contained a full-page likeness, in color, of myself wrapped in a scarlet robe. Under this was considerable printed description, and to one side a thumbprint or a drawing of one in black. Behold, Doriza was saying, matters which even expert identification men take into thought. The ears in the picture are like the ears of the real man. That could be plastic surgery, rejoined the officer. Such things are artfully done by the newcomers, and the red mantle he wears more easily assumed. 
Doritza shook her head. That happens to be my cloak. I gave it to him because he was naked, and not for any treasonable masquerade. But the thumbprint— Oh, yes, the thumbprint, I repeated wearily. By all means, study my thumbs, if you first take these bonds off of me. Bonds, mumbled old Spar. He got creakily up from his knees and bustled to me. From under his robe he produced a pouch and took out a pencil-sized rod. Gingerly opening the red mantle, he touched my tether in several places with the glowing end of the rod. The coils dropped away from my grateful body and limbs. I thrust out my hands. Thumbprints, I offered. Spar had produced something else, a little vial of dark pigment. He carefully anointed one of my thumbs and pressed it to the page. All three gazed. The same, said Dariza. And they were all on their knees before me. Forgive me, great Yandro, said the officer thickly. I did not know. Get up, I bade them. I want to hear why I was first bound and now worshipped. End of Part One